Hi, this is Brian Lane, lead pastor of FAM Church. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our Sunday message. Today, in part five of our series, The Blessed Life, we look at generosity. What it is, what it isn't, and how we can become generous people. All right. So, um, we already hit on daylight savings time. I know every, I'm like one of the few people who, this is like one of my favorite days of the year, I think, because I feel sun in the morning is a waste of time. I'm not going to lie. Because all I can do is look at it out my window. Sun in the evening, though, I can do something with because I'm not looking out the window of my office. And so I'm really excited about it. And I think as soon as you get used to the time change, all you guys are going to be excited to go home and have the sun still up and be able to go out and do things, right? No? Well, and hey, this may be our last time change. The bill is sitting on the governor's desk. We may never have to change times again. But uh, yes. And if you were here Wednesday night, you heard our big announcement, but I just want to go over that one more time. For those of you who haven't heard, who haven't seen the video, uh, we, Fam Church has added a second location. There was a church that was struggling in a city, a community called Bowling Green, about 17 miles south of here. They couldn't find a pastor to come in and pastor the church, and so we, we talked with the district, and the district um, decided that the best option for this church was to have Fam Church kind of Take, uh, the takeover is the wrong word because it sounds like we're walking in there with an army, you know, and, uh, and taking over the land. But, but you know, we, they've become a part of us. And so Fam Church now has two churches, no, one church in two locations. I keep saying it wrong, and I don't know why I keep doing that. It's one church, Fam Church. We're in two locations. We're here in Mulberry and also in Bowling Green. And uh, as I said... Charles is our campus pastor down there, and so he is going to be uh, down there preaching on a regular basis, taking the Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. I know many of you love Charles, but he's not disappearing. You'll see him once a month. He'll be here uh, preaching at this campus once a month, and uh, I'll be down there, and so you, you'll be able to see him. And listen, if you have any questions about this, any concerns, anything like that, feel free to email me, give me a call, whatever, and, and we can talk about whatever it is that you're thinking, that you're feeling that sort of thing, because uh, I want you guys to, you know, understand what we're doing, and I want this to be clear, and so if you have any questions, uh, please let me know. All right, so this morning we're continuing our series called The Blessed Life, and for those of you who are tired of me talking about this um, and are hoping to get on to other things, I've got good news. This is the second to last message in this series. Um, And next week, what I'm going to do, actually, is next week I am going to uh, go on to a different topic for one week and then come back to the final message the last week in March. And you may be saying to yourself, why would you do that? Why not just finish next week? Well, here's the reason. Next Next week's message, I want the whole church to hear next week's message. And the week after that is the start of spring break. And I know what happens when spring break comes. A lot of you guys, your church calendar follows the school calendar. And if there's any days off from school, you think the church is closed. And so what I want to do is I want to give this message next week so that uh, the maximum number of people are here to hear it because it's an important message in going forward as a church. And so that's why I'm doing it like that. And so if you're going to be gone the first week of spring break, this is the last time you have to hear me talk about this so you can clap and cheer for that if you'd like. But uh, (laughs) Carol, you haven't even been here the last couple of weeks. What are you? All right. I love Carol. All right, so let's, let's just look at it, let's talk about, let's review what we looked at last week before we move on to this week. And last week, we talked about the spirit of mammon. 
That's what we looked at uh, last week. And, and what we saw was that when Jesus said this word, mammon, you cannot serve both God and mammon, what he was talking about was not worldly riches. You know, that's what a lot of the translations of the Bible translate this word mammon to as worldly riches. But Jesus was, in fact, when he was talking about that, referring to a spirit because there was a God in the Syrian culture back then called mammon. And the people of that time, the people of that place knew about this God. And so what Jesus was saying was he was saying, look, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve the God that you love, that you know, and you cannot serve this God that is a God of finances. Because this God would say, this God would come along and say, look, you need to trust in me. You need to serve me. You need to live your life for me because I am the one who's going to take care of your family. I am the one that's going to make sure your bills are paid. I am the one that's going to make sure your mortgage is taken care of. And we saw that the spirit of mammon was out there looking for servants, looking for people to serve it. And when we serve it, we are not following what God says. As a matter of fact, God is saying, look, that's a spirit I'm trying to get you free from. Now, in hearing all of this, some people would conclude that money is evil. However, on the contrary, we saw that money is not evil, but it's an incredible tool in the hands of God to make a difference in this world. But in everything, in all of this, we finally wrapped it up with, we've got to remember that we need to use our money wisely and be good stewards of it if we are to break the spirit of mammon in our lives. This is not only true for our money, but it's also true with our time and our talents. If we are good stewards and, giver, stewards and givers of the resources that God has given us, then we're going to access the blessed life that we are looking for. And so let's move on to this morning, the second of the last message in this series, and we're going to be in the book of John chapter 12. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. If you are looking for it, you start in Matthew, count up three books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John should be next. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6 today of chapter 12, um, and don't worry if you can't find it, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Before I read this, I'd like to say a little bit about John, and the first thing that we know, need to know about John is that John was probably the disciple that was closest to Jesus, Okay, it talks about the disciple that Jesus loved many times in the New Testament, and what that's referring to, they think, is that they're talking about this man right here named John. He was part of Jesus' inner, inner circle. He was part of the group that was closest to Jesus. And because of that, when you read the book of John, it's a lot different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A lot of the events that he talks about and stories that he tells are, are kind of different from the other ones that are found in the other three Gospels. And he thought those events were more important to communicate who Jesus was and the difference that Jesus could make in your life than the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. But the event that we're going to read this morning is not one of those events. This is one event that's actually found in all four of the Gospels. It's found in Matthew, it's found in Mark, it's found in Luke, it's found in John. And so this is what it says in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Before, uh, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has ra had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's late wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
So when I read this text, there's two basic questions that pop into my head. The first one is this. Why would Mary give such a generous gift? Why would Mary give something that's worth a year's worth of wages? And then the second thing is, why would Judas get so upset about Mary doing this? And so in order to explore this, in order to look into this, we've got to look into an issue. And it's an issue of the heart. See, in this event, there are two hearts that are on display in this text, okay? There is the generous heart, and then there's the selfish heart. And what is really interesting is that the item that has revealed each heart is when it comes to giving something to Jesus. And so let's dig a little bit more deeper into this and and explore generosity for a couple of minutes. And there's three things that we need uh, that about generosity that we need to know. And the first one is this. The enemy of generosity is selfishness. And you're saying, well, duh. I mean, everybody knows that. Why are you telling us that? But do you guys know what selfishness is? See, selfishness is somebody whose primary concern in life is focused on them, their wants, their needs, their own personal profit, their own pleasure. And here's an interesting fact to go along with this definition. The word generous starts with a G, right? What else starts with a G? Maybe God? God generous? Then you can kind of see where we're going here, giving. Where does selfishness, what does selfishness selfishness start with? It starts with an S. What other? Satan. Oh my goodness. Is there a connection there? Maybe not. This could just be some fun fact that really has no point. But, but selfishness and Satan, they both start with an S. Generous and God, they both start with a G. They're connected together. But the truth be told, selfishness is a human condition. It doesn't matter your race, your gender, your country of origin. We are all born selfish, right? Anybody who has multiple kids knows this story. You're sitting in your living room watching TV. Maybe you're sitting in a chair reading a book. And then suddenly you hear from another room the blood-curdling, Mine! And you're saying to yourself, What on earth was that? So you wait another second and you hear it again. So you go to the room that the noise is coming from, and as you walk through the house, the screams get louder and more emphatic. Mine, mine, what do you usually find when you walk into that room? You find one child, usually the older child, holding something, with a younger child grabbing onto it, trying to pull said item from the older child's hands, right? Everybody who has multiple kids has experienced this. It's because that's how we are. That's how we're wired. And what do we usually do as parents when we walk into that situation? Just give them the stupid toy so they'll shut up, right? I mean, that that was usually the response in our house because it was just like, you know, if you've ever watched the movie Finding Nemo with those seagulls, I mean, that's what it just seems like in your house. Mine, 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 mine. Just make it stop. But the thing is, is that we do the exact same thing in our life with God. See, when it comes to us 
And God speaks to us in regards to giving something of us, something of ours that we don't want to give. Doesn't matter what it is, time, talents, finances. Many times we are like the three-year-old fighting with their older brother or sister trying to hold on to the gift, trying to hold on to whatever it is that God is asking us to give. And many times what God will do is to get our incessant mind, mind, mind to stop. He'll just let go of it and say, fine, you take it, you use it for whatever you want to use it for. But when we do that, we're living the exact opposite of the generous life that God is calling us to live. Sometimes we even do what Jesus did in the verse in that we look at what others are or aren't doing and then we try to use it to justify our actions. Now there's a difference though, instead of looking at their gift, we'll look at what other people have and use that to justify our response. We'll look at somebody else's house We'll look at somebody else's car. We'll look at somebody else's vacations. We'll look at somebody else's stuff and we'll say, man, those guys just waste so much money. Just think of all the good they could have done with that money. They could have helped the poor. They could have funded this food church's food distribution for years. What is wrong with these people? But see, when we look at our own stuff, Those same words don't come out of our mouth, do they? We'll say, well, I only own a $16,000 car. They've got a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, and that thing's worth $200,000. Just think if they would have been like me and only spent $16,000 on my vehicle, they could have done so much more with that difference between $16,000 and $200,000. Well, the truth is, who really needs a $16,000 car, if we want to be honest? Most of the world functions with a $500 car, a $1,000 car. But we do that because as long as we can point the finger at someone else out there doing it wrong, we don't have to look inside and see what's going on in our own heart. We don't have to test our own heart and see how selfish we really are. And that's what God is doing. God is testing our hearts to see where we are at on the selfishness scale at all times. I mean, think about this text that we just looked at in Judas. It said in the text, right, that Judas was stealing money from the money bag. So the question is this. Did Jesus know that Judas was stealing money from the money bag? Yes or no? Yes, Jesus knew he was stealing. As a matter of fact, we can see in a place in the the New Testament where two years, two years before this event happened, Jesus said these words. He said, I did not choose you, or I did, I did I not choose you, 12, and yet one of you is a thief. See, God knew that Judas was a thief. He knew what was going to happen when he put Judas in charge of the money. But the reason that Jesus took and put Judas in charge of the money was because he was going to test him. He was testing him on a regular basis to see if he would allow God to break through his selfish heart and become generous like he was. Unfortunately, Judas did not pass the test. But we need to know that every day 
God is testing us in the exact same way. You may be saying, well, Judas was stealing money. I would never steal money. When the offering thing went by, I wouldn't take anything out of it. When, um, um, even if I was in the store and the, the cashier gave me too much change, I'd make sure that they got the right money back. That's not me. That's not who I am. Here's the deal. That is not how our generosity and selfish heart is going to be tested. How we are going to be tested is God is going to see if we keep what belongs to him, thinking that we cannot survive if we give it to God. See, what we looked at with Judas was specifically about money, but the same is applicable to whatever it is we are talking about giving. If God asks something and our response is, I don't have the time, just like Judas, when we say, I don't have the time, we are stealing from God. If God comes to us and says, uh, I want you to do this, and we say, you know what, God, I just don't have the talent. When we do that, we are stealing from God. And in the same way, when it comes to our finances and our giving, if we say, God, I don't have the finances to give, what we are in fact saying is, God, I'm keeping this that belongs to you for me because I can't live without it. We need to stop reaching into the resources that God has given us by selfishly keeping it for us first, then doing what God asks with what's left over. God has called us to put away selfishness and to walk in generosity in our lives in all areas. The second thing that I see here in these verses is that generosity is extravagant. How extravagant is generosity? God's generosity. We can look to the cross. I mean, think about how extravagant a gift that was. I mean, we sing about it with the song, Reckless Love, how reckless that love was, offering a son up on a cross to die for mankind who didn't give one rip about God. And I know that we're thinking to ourselves, oh man, you know what, I really can't relate to that because I don't, I would never even consider offering one of my children up to die for people. Okay, I get that. None of us would willingly just set our child up. Now, if you find your child really annoying, don't, don't say, well, I'll volunteer my child, okay? But, but most of us, we would never volunteer our child to be sacrificed, right? But that's what God did. So let's go to something maybe we can relate with. Let's talk about David the king. David was king in Israel. He was Israel's second king. And when he became king, um, he was going along pretty good. But then he got off into the weeds a little bit, got himself in a little trouble, you know, had an affair, had a baby out of wedlock, had all sorts of crazy things going on. And so, um, but God, during that time, when David went through all of that, God came to him and said, you know what, David, I forgive you. He repented of his sin and, and God forgive, forgave him for his sin. And David was so overwhelmed by God's forgiveness for his sin that he actually went out, he purchased land, he built a temple for God to be worshipped in. They've done some math. I don't, people must have a lot of spare time on their hands because seriously, I don't know who would have time to calculate this. But somebody sat down and calculated how much gift or how much David's gift that he gave for the temple would be worth in today's dollars. And they calculated at about 21 billion dollars. That's how 
extravagant David was for God forgiving his sin and restoring him. And I know we're sitting there going, I don't have $21 billion. Listen, if I had $21 billion, I could give almost $21 billion because I only need, uh, you know, $100 million to live on. And so, so I could make it that way. Okay, let's go to somebody else in the Bible who gave an extravagant gift. Because here's the deal, it's not the amount that makes a gift extravagant, it's the heart behind the gift. And so to see this, we're gonna head back into the New Testament. There was this one time where Jesus was standing outside the temple in Jerusalem when this event happened. We're gonna be reading Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. This is what it says. It said, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. If we were to compare the two gifts, which gift, David's gift or the widow's gift, was more extravagant to God? The widow's gift was more extravagant. Why? Because she gave all that she had to live on. It was only a few cents, but it was much more extravagant than anybody who had a lot of money and could walk in and write a big check and set it down there in the temple. It was far more extravagant. It was bigger. It was larger. It was more incredible. And it's because it's the heart behind the gift that matters. And that's the deal with Mary in the story of this perfume. Mary gave Jesus almost a year's worth of wages. She couldn't afford to do that. She wasn't in a place where she could just give a year's worth of wages to God. That's not where she was at. That's not who she was. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in a few minutes that her lot in life was pretty tough because she was living with her brother. And what it meant back then that a grown woman was living with her brother was this. Either A, her husband had died and she had no one, or B, she never got married in the first place. And in that society, in that culture, not be, being a woman and not being married basically reserved, meant that you were resigned to the streets to beg the rest of your life. That's what that meant. But she gave a year's worth of wages even though she could have been a beggar on the streets. She was overflowing with thankfulness towards Jesus and her thankfulness flowed out from her with the gift that she gave. And so we'll come back to this in a few minutes, but when God has our hearts and we are overflowing with thankfulness, we'll do crazy things to show it like extravagance in how we give. We will do whatever it takes and whatever God asks us to do with what we have because we love him so much, and because we trust him with everything. But so many Christians do not reach this place and point in their life. As each year passes, giving to churches, giving to God gets less and less and less in the United States. As a matter of fact, the Assemblies of God, which is what we are a part of, They have actually told their church planners 
to make sure that you can create two other streams of revenue with your church because you are not going to survive on people giving to the church. Giving is at an all-time low in America. But what so many people realize is that when we do that, we hurt ourselves. And so to set up what I'm going to tell you, I've got to talk about the three levels of giving that are found in the Bible. It's really quick. The first level of giving is the tithe. We know that. We've talked about that. The second level, level of giving is the offering, which is anything beyond the tithe. Then the third level of giving is extravagant. On uh, other places in the Bible, it's called painful giving. Uh, 95% of those who follow Jesus in the U.S. never even reach the level of the tithe. However, if you get to the first level, you should be able to reach the second level and then the third level because the first level helps to break those things off of our life that keep us from getting to the second and third level. And so I just want, you know, I've been through this whole cycle in my life. Where have I been? You know, when I first became a Christian, I didn't want to give it all. I think I told the story, but all I knew of the church was Jim and Tammy Baker because that's all I had ever heard about the church. We weren't regular churchgoers when I was a kid. We weren't involved in a church, and so I kind of considered the church was a scam. It actually took me six months from the time I became a Christian until I actually stepped into a church because I didn't trust churches, period. And so I wasn't going to give anything, but then after a little bit, God started to deal with my heart, and so I started to give what I could when I could. And so a check here, a check there. When I had enough money left over after paying my bills and doing that, I would do that. Then I came to the point where I knew that God was calling me to more. And so I went to, instead of just giving when I could, when I could, I gave what I could joyfully. And so if I could write a check for whatever, joyfully i do it. And so my giving went up a little bit. And then God called me to tithing. Then he called me to give to missions. And as I walked through each step, of this journey, I thought each step was going to break me. Then God had started to call me into extravagant giving. And now, when I say extravagant giving, don't picture me walking in here with my checkbook going, how much do I got in there? All right, here we go. <laughs> Putting it in the thing. No, no, that's, that's not what I'm talking about when I say extravagant giving. I've never gotten to the place where we could, I could give it all the way, and who knows, God may never bring me to that place. But God, each and every single year, has asked us as a family, or asked me, I just kind of let Dana know about it, uh, (laughs) um, to, to go higher, and to go higher, and to give more, and to give more. And I gotta tell you, this year, as I've been praying and asking God what he is wanting us to do as far as our giving goes financially, if I listen to what I feel God is speaking to me, it will be the single biggest expense that we have going out of our uh, bank account every single month. It'll be more than my mortgage, okay? It'll be more than uh, insurance. It'll be more than our food. It'll be even more than car insurance. Those of you who have teenagers, good God, car insurance is expensive, I don't know, I need, I, yeah, we need our kids to graduate high, uh, college and, uh, and uh, get into the workforce because car insurance, it's insane. It goes up like $100 a month every month. I don't know, I can't keep up. But, but, if, but what keeps a lot of people from doing that is fear. People become afraid 
And we talked about this last week. We live in fear that we aren't going to be able to take care of our kids. We aren't going to be able to pay our bills. We're going to end up with our house foreclosed and our car repossessed. We've got to understand something. When we think like that, we are misplacing our fears. See, so many of us who follow Jesus misplace our fears in our life. And Lisa talked about this a few weeks ago in her message on fear, but I just want to reemphasize it once again because it came up in our staff meeting this last week. And here's the deal. When, when Jesus was in that boat and the storm came upon them, Jesus was sleeping, and the disciples were freaking out. They were scared to death. They were sure they were going to die. But then when you fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, on Jesus' last day here on this earth, the disciples were sleeping, and Jesus was in the garden praying and sweating blood and asking God to take this cup from him. See, the disciples were afraid of the wrong thing. They were afraid of the wind. They were afraid of the waves. They were afraid of them going down in that boat and them dying. But when they really should have been afraid, when Jesus was getting ready to go to that cross, they were off sleeping. We misplace our fears in our life. And too many times we fear things that God has said, do not be afraid of. We fear things that God has said, do not worry about that. And instead, we let those things consume us. We spend our life worrying about things God has told us not to be worried about. Listen, God has said he's going to take care of your family. God has said he is going to take care of your house. God has said he's going to take care of your children. And if you're living in fear because you don't think your kids Your house, your family is going to make it unless you are in control. You are afraid of the wrong thing. Let go of your fears. And you may be wondering why me as a person, our family would continue to give more, especially if we were at that 10% mark in our life. And it's the third point. See, there's a reward for us when we are generous. Our event that we read from at the beginning of this uh, message in John is also talked about in the other Gospels, as I said, and where this event is talked about in Mark is especially interesting. Jesus adds these words in verse 9 of chapter 14, Truly I tell you, wherever the Gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She's still talked about today. Her act of giving to God is still making an impact in people's lives. It's still drawing people to Jesus. See, God always rewards us when we are generous. Not that that should be our expectation when we're generous, when we give. Our expectation should not be, okay, God, I'm giving you. What's the reward going to be? That should not be our thought. That should not be our expectation. We don't give so that we can get something in return. We do not seek after the reward. But God rewards us when we step out in faith in our life. When we are willing to say, God, I'm going to take a risk. I'm not going to be afraid of the things you tell me not to be afraid of. Instead, I'm going to fear the things that you tell me to to, to fear, and I'm going to step out, and I'm going to do what 
what you have called me to do. And that's when we get into a place where we're rewarded. It's because of the attitude of our heart that rewards come. And so backing up to Mary, where did this generosity come from in Mary? Where did she get to this place where she took a whole year's worth of wages and dumped it on this man's feet? It came from her grateful heart. What did Mary have to be so thankful for that she would give such an extravagant gift? If we were to back up one chapter, John chapter 11. Mary and Martha were weeping by a tomb. That tomb was the tomb of her brother Lazarus. Jesus walks into town and walks to that tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. Jesus went and raised her brother from the dead. As I said before, Mary and Martha were not married, and so that says that there was something going on there and that Lazarus was their source of hope, their source of care, their source of where they got their financial stability from. And so Lazarus, being dead, could have doomed these two women to a life on the streets where they would have had to turn to begging in prostitution in order to make it through this life. But Jesus walked into town, walked up to her brother's tomb, said, come out of there. Lazarus rose from the dead, and because of that, she was eternally grateful because Jesus saved her from a hard, painful life, begging on the streets and using her body to make money. She could think of no other way to honor Jesus than to do what she did and being generous to him. And here's the most important point. See, the story of Lazarus, that's our story. You see, we were dead. We were lost. We were separated from God. But then Jesus came, and he spoke into our life, and he raised us from death to life. He brought us from sin, destruction, and the bondage that it holds, and he rose us to life again. And because of that, we should be the most grateful people on this planet. Our salvation and what Jesus has done for us should never escape us. It should be our passion and our focus because of what he has done for us. The extravagant love that he showed for us and that should flow out of us with extravagant love as well. And we should be extravagant in our giving to Jesus and giving of our time and giving of our talents and giving of our treasure because of what he did for us. He set us free he gave us a hope. He gave us a future. And there's nothing that we could have done to earn that. I hope you guys understand that there's nothing that we could have done to get free from that hold of sin in our lives. Jesus and only his extravagant love could set us free. Thank you for joining us on the Fam Church Podcast. FAM Church is here to connect people to Christ. If you live in or are visiting the Lakeland, Florida area, we would love for you to join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. You can also check us out online at myfamchurch.com. Thank you again and have an amazing day.